we are transitioning our written testimonials to video testimonials. Any advice for how best to ask people to participate, as well as anything else we should keep in mind? So first rule of thumb on this is making sure you get a signed waiver that specifically like outlines the permission they're giving you and what that testimonial can be used for or can't be used for because so many organizations forget this step and some, you know, something happens and whatever the person that is helping them with the testimonial then gets ticked off at a later date and I don't know, raises holy hell, right, for something like this. So anyway, I definitely think that like that's kind of the the one thing to check off. Uh, I, I love the idea that you're moving to video testimonials because there is so much power in video these days and all of the studies and research is showing that's where it's at is in videos. So uh, moving away from just all written testimonials is super smart. Uh, I, I'm just thinking that perhaps um, you might also, to make it effective, when you get the person to agree to do a video testimonial for you, you, you might try to make it as seamless and as comfortable as possible for them. It means most people can relate to the idea of they don't want to see themselves, they don't want to hear themselves uh, Andy, you know that I have an issue with this. I hate even, you know, I, I do it to honor Andy and his editing time for these podcasts, but man, it's hard to listen <laughs> to yourself or see yourself on screen. So one of the things that uh, you, you really want to do is think about how you can create a comfortable environment and make it more of an inviting or easy process for them to go through if it's giving them a question or two in advance of, of what you're going to ask, or if it's just, you know, let's have a conversation and we're going to happen to have this camera here recording while we do it. So, uh, you know, so you can actually just talk naturally to me. I mean, there's a lot of different strategies and, uh, you know, people who are professionals with this know how to do that. Although I, I would just caution if there's a way on your video testimonials to, to keep it so that it is, uh, people that the the donor or the person you're getting a testimonial from that they that person knows is going to make this process easier. Um, I know I can speak from experience when I've been asked to do different things over the years when I have to just you know be interviewed by someone who doesn't know me or 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 recorded or you know there's the videographer who doesn't know me from from Adam. It can really get. It's just it's just not is natural, it's not as authentic, it, it feels a bit more stiff, and I think that um, it, it can really be a challenge. So those are just a few ideas, um, but, but kudos to you for moving to video, that's super cool. So, you, you know, every once in a while you'll be like in a big group of people and the, the presenter will say, or the teacher or whatever will say, like if one of you has a question that, that maybe lots of people have the same question, so you should probably ask it. This is my long way of saying, what's a, what's a video testimonial and why would you want one? Oh, well, I love, I love that you're asking. Um, I honestly don't know. So, I mean, so the idea would be, you know, when you get the, the, the customer, the donor, the client, whatever that says nice things about your organization, it's, it's getting them to do that via video instead. Right. So getting them, recording them so you can put the little clip of, oh, you know, Mary Jane 
said this about our organization and here check out this this you know personal um tribute to us from from xyz corporate donor whatever so it's you know obviously it's a tool to build credibility like a written testimonial and a way to just kind of instead of bragging about yourself having other people brag about you so does that does that help clear it up or Am yeah. I keeping it too basic? Okay. Yeah, no, it's just like trying to, you know, because it, it feels like it could be like, is it constituents? Is it donors? Because we, or we always kind of have the question, are you, um, especially if you're talking about constituents, are you exploiting people? Are you exploiting people's pain to try to bring more money to your nonprofit? And that's sort of my, I was wondering if, if I mean, that's obviously uh, something that you're want going to want to consider. I don't know if, if that's a, if that's something that you have to think about when you do that kind of thing or I think I mean I think you're to your point I guess it depends on what I I was reading this more from a standpoint of like a testimonial being someone that someone right like voluntarily is is doing for you and um and they're doing because they're so in love with your services and work as an organization and or their experience with your organization and they just want to share it so it's less about their pain and it's more about you know i i never knew about xyz organization and when i found them my life was turned around for this reason or whatever like so i think it's a little less of like the sarah mclaughlin like animal you know this poor sad <laughs> oh that breaks my heart but it's a little less of that style and more of just like a kind of a positive upbeat um and and you know organizations can put it on their website or put it on their you know, emails that they send out or, you know, use it in a variety of social media, right? A variety of different ways. But sure. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting seeing how things are transitioning. Everything is, is so digital these days and moving from written. Uh, and it actually makes me think about my own website and man, it's all written testimonials. So I need to get with the program. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I am here with Andy Shurick fabulous co-host. And this podcast is made possible by Anne, the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So if you haven't checked out Anne, make sure to do so. And of course, friendly reminder, always send us your questions. We love your questions and it truly makes our jobs a lot easier than having to create our own. So send them on over. Thanks. Today's podcast is sponsored by Immunize Nevada. Arm yourself by getting your annual flu vaccine. It protects you, your family, and those working on the front lines. Do your part. Get your flu vaccine by Nevada Day. Visit nvflufighter.org for more information and to find free and low-cost clinics. With so many staff working remotely with company equipment or their own equipment, what policies should we have in place to protect the organization, our employees, and our equipment? Mm. <laughs> More pandemic questions. Well, so 
you know, you, you should have had these policy. Well, you should have the same policies in place, regardless of whether it's people are working remotely more often now than they were before. And the ones about company equipment are pretty straightforward. You can find them on the internet, just a policy about company equipment. It's no different from a nonprofit or a for-profit. It's all going to be kind of the same language, which is that it, it doesn't belong to you. You have to return it when your employment ends. Uh, please don't destroy it. Uh, please use it for work only, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's really, it's just really sort of straightforward um, use of company equipment policy that every, you know, you can get them everywhere. Just to, type company equipment policy into Google and you'll get like a thousand hits um, and pick, pick one of them. Um, as I think a more interesting, cause it's like, what are the more interesting question would might be um, is with so many people working remotely, one of the things that you lose control of is not necessarily the equipment, but people's behavior on that equipment. And that's, that's where I think you need to protect both the employees and yourself from things like things like, ransomware and viruses and inappropriate use of equipment and you know all of the all of the sort of people problems that you're going to have with equipment and less so with like don't spill coffee on it or don't sell it uh, those kinds of things and you bring up a really good point because one of the things i did you, you know being full disclosure when we got this question i i thought geez i'm not i'm not totally sure of the answer so i did my own little bit of research like I do for, for these podcasts. And one of the things um, that, that is talked about a lot is the idea of rules around or work, you know, remote work policies that not only cover the technology aspects, but also the safety of employees in remote work situations, which it was something I never thought about, but it appears that there's some insurance policies that will cover if there's an injury or something that happens in a remote workplace, there's some insurance policies that will cover that. There's others that won't. So what do you do if you're an employer and your employee says, I don't know, they tripped over something in their own house? How does that apply? Uh, and then similarly with the computer issue, uh, things like, okay, is it a public Wi-Fi or is it, you know, private? And what are some of the, and, and then confidentiality and are other people in the house using the computer as well? And are, you know, are you dealing with confidential situations with clients? So it's, it's a lot more complex than I even realized, which I quickly found out doing uh, some of that Google, that Google research. And um, certainly I'm not an expert. So Probably this might be. I, I don't, what are you thinking, Andy? I mean, would you would you classify yourself as an expert on this, or shall we try to bring someone in? Yeah, let's bring somebody in on this one. I think I think there are lots of interesting questions, especially the ones that you just brought up that um, kind of go alongside with this. It would be really interesting to hear from somebody who's actually thought about this a lot and is working in this space. Welcome back, everybody, and I'm really excited to have our guest expert today. Amy Sample Ward is the CEO of N10, and we're we're thrilled to have her because she's got tons of expertise in this area, and I really want everybody to know more about N10. So, Amy, can you start us off with sort of a an explanation of what N10 is, what they do, how long they've been around, that kind of stuff? 
I would love to. Thanks for having me on. N10 is a nonprofit, and our mission is to make sure that all other nonprofits are able to use technology strategically and in racially equitable ways to really actually meet their mission, to really meet community need. And that means that we don't have a product focus. We don't sell you products. We don't recommend products. I know how much you just want to know what database to use. Like, unfortunately, mm -hmm. we're not going to give you an easy answer to that. But we will teach you everything you need to know to, to manage technology, budget for technology, make your own plans, make your own strategies, and be really successful regardless of what your position is in your organization. It is 2020 in the middle of a pandemic. Clearly every person is using technology. So we're here in the N10 world to give you direct training, professional development, community groups, resources, research, whatever you might need to help you really be as successful as you can be. That's great. And just to throw also in there, N10 is a nonprofit's 501c3. You're not a consulting company. No, nope. you have uh, like memberships. So individuals can become members of N10 and they get all kinds of fantastic benefits by becoming members. Yeah. And we are we have an annual conference, which I'm sure like many of you listening has been impacted by COVID. Um, our annual conference, the nonprofit technology conference is usually in March every year. So we were the we were like the first domino um, in, in 2020 to fall. But we are planning for a virtual conference for next March. and just like all of the rest of our programs, our conference is open to anybody in an organization that wants to learn about or talk about technology. And e even if you have never heard of N10 until this moment, really encourage you to visit the website and submit a session too. We'd love to support folks who've never, never presented anywhere before, folks who've never presented at the NTC before. Um, the experience that every person has in technology is worth really elevating and strengthening so we really welcome you to come share your experience with us awesome so let's jump into the question okay so with with so many staff working remotely with company equipment or their own equipment what policies should we have in place to protect the organization our employees and our equipment and i'm especially concerned with protecting our nonprofit from ransomware attacks me too <laughs> yeah, there's so much in that question um and i do want to answer the question i want to be really honest that my first response in reading that question though is the things that i think are most important have not been listed there as things that you should be protecting um i didn't hear anything about your service participant or donor data being protected I didn't hear about your actual staff being protected. You know, I'm, I'm hearing those, those equipment pieces we want to protect and um, want to have policies in place, but so much of security is the human piece of things. Mm -hmm. So keeping both our kind of strategic focus on people as well as our practical application of, of what, what you move forward with security on the people side, I think will help you navigate what is going to be a lot of decisions um, as you start to go down this security road. And from there, I'd say the very first recommendation I have is so many organizations don't don't really know where to start because they don't know where they're vulnerable. So that's the first thing. Go figure out in all of your different systems, 
what is actually vulnerable? Have you closed every hole <laughs> that someone could use to log into your website or log in remotely to your database? Uh, those are vulnerabilities that you may not really be thinking about because they're not access points that you use. But if they exist, then someone else really can use them, right? So um, figuring, figuring all of that out and making sure all those kind of holes are patched, so to speak. And some of that work isn't just on you. You likely have cloud services that are with some other vendor. So know that you have every right to, to reach out to those vendors and say, hey, I have a few questions. You know, what other holes may there be here and how can we make sure that everything's as secure as it can be? And then number two, just, just to stay on that line while you're talking to those vendors is saying, hey, what are you doing to protect our data, right? They, they have certainly a lot at stake as well as the provider. So really understanding what practices they have in place so that you know what else to build out on your side um, and then actually building that so that you, you have practices that you take. Right. I, I mean, that's that's kind of a terrifying thing. There's I mean, anybody that's been paying attention to the news recently knows that a very significant service provider to nonprofits did have a loss of control of their data. And some of the data that they lost control of is truly terrifying. And right. the, you've got no recourse. Like once the horse is out of the barn, the horse is out of the barn. There is no way to get that data back. And there's really I mean, you can't do anything about it once the provider has lost control of it. Yeah. And even the most secure system from the standpoint of, you know, I think we're, I think often we think about security or, or data breaches as like that, you know, 20 year old white kid wearing their hoodie in their parents' basement, like typing away furiously and like their screen says like access approved or something. <laughs> and they like log into your database and press like a really dramatic download button or something, you know, <laughs> like, unfortunately, if that was what it was, we would, we would be able to lock it down a lot better. What is really happening, even in cases that you may read about in, in the news of, you know, organizations having data breaches or whatever else is someone phishing, someone emailing a staff person, either impersonating a manager or the CEO or some other relationship that, that they would not question and asking a question like, hey, can you reset that password for me? Or hey, can you send me this? And that means what we really need to focus on as well is staff education. There should be a policy and a practice and a culture that you are never emailing a password to any system, to any person at any time for any reason, right? Like if I am in jail and I say, hey staff, they'll let me go if you email me this password, do not email the password, right? right. Like just don't do it because that is how a lot of systems are getting breached. Not because they found some secret back entrance, they walked right in the front door, right? They are right. using a staff's access. Um, so working a lot on staff education and, and making sure that every staff person knows that they are just as critical to the security of the organization's systems and, and user data as the IT director is. All right. This makes me think of in the financial side of it, 
there's always an internal controls document. And if you're audited, the auditors come and they ask you about your internal controls. And some of the things they talk about are absurd. Like how many people are, you know, you know, multiple people opening the mail just in case someone mails you cash and right. all these just really strange scenarios. But there's, there's a process that you have to go through every single year, once a year that talks about all those things. Do you recommend a sort of a, a technology management internal controls document or anything like that? Yeah, I, I would, I think it's a really interesting and important comparison to the kind of financial policies document. I would say what's, what's most important to me about that comparison is less that your financial policies or handbook, you know, may include things like who's allowed to do X. I think that's less important with technology, especially as we all work from home. Like you can't carry your laptop over to someone and ask for permission now. Like everyone needs to have some level of access, but it's really that any staff person or auditor at any time could look at those financial policies and know what the process is for things. And that's, I think, the important piece for security is that anyone on staff knows what the process is going to be. I'll send to you, Andrew, and you can post the link when you share the, the podcast. We have a totally free, you know, you don't need to get anything from N10 to get it, but we did a report um, last year about the state of cybersecurity in nonprofits. And like, I'll, you know, give you the, the answer before you download it. Like, it's real bad. The state of <laughs> cybersecurity is real bad. Um, but I think it's a helpful resource as you start to think about this in your organization, because, you know, one of the pieces in there that's really important is just scenario planning. Have you ever actually as a whole staff said, hey, what if our data is breached? What if we do get a ransomware attack? What do we do? And there should be, <laughs> there should be an answer to that, right? That everyone knows and that everyone has even practiced. What does it look like if one staff person looks like they may be getting locked out and something's happening on their machine? How do you separate that machine? How do you separate that account? You know, all of those steps should be rehearsed as a team and very few organizations are doing that kind of planning for what are the steps that we need to take and practicing it. But just like, you know, soccer or, or any other um, like activity or sport, you practice in those scenarios so that you don't have to think when it comes up, right? Like, you know, your, your muscles remember what to do. Um, you have the confidence and the calm that comes with, hey, I know this. I've done this before. We've practiced this. And really giving your staff <laughs> the, the gift of being able to stay calm and know that there's an answer is already going to position you for better success if you do get attacked than if they are every single one of them panicking and like responding to the people saying, oh, well, I'll give you this. Please just turn it back on. You know, it's, it's going to be much, much better, even if you do get attacked, to know what to do in response. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a good point, because one of the things that we've noticed in nonprofits in general is because there's a board of directors that has this ultimate control, it's the kind of thing that when something bad is starting to happen, the, the first instinct isn't, if you don't already have a plan for it, the first is, instinct isn't to solve it, it's to convene a committee. And, <laughs> and in scenarios like this, that like you're, you're sunk if it's gonna take you any time at all to try to figure out what to do next, right? Right, and I would say, especially when it's a nonprofit board made up of volunteers who have jobs of their own in all different sectors, like, maybe not a group that can mobilize in the same way that staff can. But to say, 
we've, you know, done our homework, we've figured out with our different vendors, even like if they have protocol that would go into effect, what, you know, all those different pieces and the board essentially, just like with your financial policies approves that. And that approval is also saying, yep, if that happens, like the staff will take these steps, right? Whether the board is activated or not. Right. That makes sense. I mean, we've had these similar conversations about one of the questions we got was how do we prevent our, our next strategic planning session from going off the rails because everybody's going to talk about pandemic planning, right? So, and the, the question was like, would, have been, would it have been appropriate before the pandemic happened to have put in place a plan for that because it was so unlikely to have happened? But right. this is something that I think the likelihood is probably significantly higher. Uh, we right. just, we, you know, we see it all the time. I, and anybody that uses a computer and uses internet is receiving like maybe not really sophisticated phishing emails, but but ones that, you know, yeah, that's not really an invoice in that weird Excel document that you just sent. Me. Right. And you know, it's not Social Security sending you a statement. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that organizations, especially when it comes to cybersecurity, it feels like either it's so scary and we and we become aware of how little we feel we know about it, that it's like, oh my gosh, just don't even talk about that. Or on the other hand, it's so scary and we know actually a lot about it and know how scary it really is that we're like, oh, oh, definitely don't ever talk about it. So, so <laughs> either direction you go, fear is such a strong component and is immobilizing a lot of organizations, which I think, I think sometimes because of the news around it, that it's like, well, I'm not Blackbot. I'm not the city of Baltimore. I'm not like a known entity. Mm-hmm. And that's the case if maybe you're you're not a super known organization and they're trying to someone's trying to attack or steal your data to use the data. But if they're doing it for ransomware, all they need to know is that you're gonna want it back, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't need to know that someone out there is like interested in seeing who donated to you. Like the ransomware attacks aren't because folks think (laughs) the data you have is like going to go up on the evening news. They're doing it because they know you need the data back. So you will pay them for it. That's all that matters. And that unfortunately means every organization is susceptible to this. Thank you. That's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm really here to lift and inspire, Andrew, like, you know, fill everyone with hope. But I mean, I guess the hope piece would be it's not that complex, right? You really can create a plan for this. You really can train all of your staff in this. And like I said before, I doubt that a lot of organizations listening to this have built and hosted all of their own software, right? You're probably working with partners and vendors. So start even just by talking to them and say, you know, what are you doing? What what can we do as a better partner on our end? Do you know how to do your own backups of your data? All of those pieces will just help you get into the practice of talking about this. And then it will feel less scary because then it's not this big, like ooey gooey cybersecurity topic. It's backups, it's staff training, it's scenario planning, it's things that you do in all of your other areas. Yeah, that's a good point because at this point we're not really in the world for most nonprofits that everybody has a server closet that 
you've right. got to worry about putting in backup takes and tapes and taking them home and things like that. There's so much that's cloud-based now, you're really sort of relying on the cloud providers to do that on your behalf. So I guess it's more of a conversation with them than it is like understanding that your version of Windows Server is patched properly right. and nonsense like that, right? Right, yep. So so pivoting to the, the other piece of the question, which was just the, the equipment policies. You know, I, I think my my when I read the question initially, my instinct was that that's equipment, right? <laughs> we, if we need more, we, we make sure that we log into TechSoup at the right time and we get what we need. And it's, it's not something that I would be super concerned about. It's really sort of the data and being able to function that yeah. I think is more critical than the actual physical hardware. And I think regardless of the working from home, like because of the pandemic situation, you should already have employee policies that say, you know, how staff, get equipment? How many years old is their machine before they get a new one? What happens to that one once they get a new one? Can folks buy the old ones for personal use? Can um, do staff get reimbursed for their internet at home? All of those pieces really have nothing to do with the pandemic. Those are all considerations that you should have employee policies for, not because they're technology um, policies, but because they are human policies and your staff are humans that need to know the answers to how they're supported and using technology. Uh, I've talked to a number of organizations who've said, well, now, you know, everyone has their laptops, their, you know, their work laptops at home. What we need to like, make sure they're only using them for work, <laughs> which one, that's absurd. They're obviously it's a computer. Um, we're going to use it for whatever we want. And also that's absurd. It was already a laptop that they could be taking home. Like everyone is watching Netflix on their work computer. Like, please get over it. That's the world. You know, um, you probably are as well. And maybe you're the executive director. So <laughs> the idea that the computer can only be used quote unquote for work isn't realistic. That doesn't mean that you should have a, a ha have kind of a blanket, like do whatever there should be some guidance. This is an organization machine. We don't, you know, want you downloading, I don't know, like illegal software onto it, or we want to make sure that all staff laptops are running security checks um, at whatever frequency you want, you know? So you can still have some parameters in there, but make sure that they are human. Like you're not going to be able to prevent people from going to YouTube because there's probably 18 reasons that they'd need to go to YouTube for work also. You know, mm -hmm. another area that we have gotten a lot of questions from organizations who've like traditionally relied on everyone is at work when they're all in this one building together, uh, not at home remotely. And so it's kind of a newer situation that, that staff wouldn't be in the office. We've got a lot of questions about, do we have to pay for their internet now? Do we like need to buy more equipment for them? Do they get to buy their own and like pick what it is? Of course, Enten's answer, uh, especially through our lens of the equity guide for nonprofit tech that we've published is yes, <laughs> you should pay for that internet. You are ensuring that they can do work for you. So you need to be able to invest to make sure that that work is happening. That doesn't mean that every organization needs to necessarily like hire a nanny for every staff person who has kids or something like that. But to the basic elements of do they have the equipment that falls out to, are you covering 
part of their phone plan if they're using their cell phone to make work calls now? Are you paying a portion of their home internet costs because that's where they're connecting and working? So remembering that all of those pieces used to be included in the office, so too should they be included when the office is now virtual. That's a good point. Because, and you may be saving money in the office too, because you're not, right. if people aren't there, they're not using it, you might be able to make that less expensive for them. Yep. Well, thank you, Amy. That was fantastic. We really appreciate you taking the time to answer the question on the podcast. Just remind everybody that the state of cybersecurity report that Amy mentioned is going to be uh, in the nonprofit everything show notes. So go there and you can find a link to that as well as a link to N10. So you can see all of the fantastic work that they're doing. I believe that Correct me if I'm wrong, I think the individual membership for N10 is $99 a year, and that includes all kinds of discounts to all the training materials and everything that you guys have and the live trainings that you do as well. Yep, and it's a sliding scale. So if 99 is not something that you can do, you can also pay less. Even better. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. That's it for another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, if there's anything we talked about today that made you wonder about something else, go ahead and shoot us an email. Go to the Nonprofit Everything website and click on the Ask a Question link. Tweet us. Uh, You can try to use Facebook, whatever you want. (laughs) Uh, Get those questions to us and we'll try to get them on future episodes. With that, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. (music) 